Let's uh, take an opportunity to pray once again. Thank you, Jesus, for bringing us to this point of coming to your word. And Lord, as we talk, uh, as we hear from your word, Lord, what it is uh, that you want to do in us and through us, we pray that we would have ears opened and hearts enfolding around you. Glorify your name because you are glorious. In Jesus' name, amen. In 1977, Schoolhouse Rock released the video song, The Great American Melting Pot. Okay, I'm just dying of curiosity. Who remembers that? The Great American Melting Pot? Okay, yes, my boys actually do remember that because one of the first things we bought at this Costco seven and a half years ago was the collection of Schoolhouse Rock. Uh, Now, what I didn't know until I was looking this up is that they have a whole new series uh, in the 2000s. Okay, well, anyways, great, the Great American Melting Pot. Fortunately, or not, it scarred me with the idea that part of what made America great was fundamental to what had created our culture and that we could become greater when we melted everyone together with their cultural geniuses and flavors into that genius that was already at work at home. But at an early age, I became aware of various groups of people demanding special treatment, days, weeks, months, held in honor of their interests. This was and is the agenda of the multiculturalists of the 80s and today who wish to say that all cultures are equal and that therefore there is no cultural greatness or genius that is particularly American in our version of the West. Enfeebled by Vietnam and political and moral upheaval, the American psyche has simply not been able to withstand the onslaught and have thus descended into cultural mediocrity, if not debauchery, and is in no small part of what is wrong with our culture today. Ooh, them's fighting words. It is too much to say that our forefathers possessed the trait that Jesus extols in the next beatitude, but I don't think it is too much to say that if there had been more meekness on the part of the recipient culture, America, and on the part of those who immigrated in the last 60 years, the rest of the 20th century and our world would be fundamentally a better place today. And I propose to defend that statement. Matthew 5.5 5, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. The theme that I get from this verse is great gain is theirs who demand it the least. Meekness in our culture and in the hearts of those who have migrated here in the last 50 years would have enabled all concern to combine and benefit from that combination. So to begin with, I want to have us understand what meekness is. Let me give you an initial image that hopefully will carry us through the sermon. Meekness is an ox that is quote-unquote broken for the plow. It takes much toil, much pain, anger, goes into making this ox into a powerful 
tool in its master's hand. All the raw power of the giant animal must first be focused in order for it to be harnessed for the farmer. Furthermore, if this image fits, because when the ox is broken with a firm but kind hand, that ox comes to love the master who quote-unquote breaks it. As is obvious with this image, meekness has nothing to do with weakness. Meekness has everything to do with power under control. So with this image as a foundation for what comes to follow, I want us to see what it means for Christians to be meek and to show how being appropriately so will enable us to prepare for eternity and for the culture wars that are engaging all around us. So let's begin. How does meekness fit with the Beatitudes? So far we have three Beatitudes, blessed are the poor in spirit, those who mourn, and the meek. But I want us to notice as we go down the Beatitudes list, what we are finding is that they are becoming progressively more difficult. Difficult in the sense that each builds on the last and they make greater demands on our ego. We don't like the idea of being meek. If I, am, if I am to be poor in spirit, then my emotional reaction to being poor in spirit will be to mourn my sin. If I am to be poor in spirit, then my relational reaction with others will be to be meek, to stop looking primarily at myself and see how I should relate with those around me. Meekness is primarily how we relate to other humans as mourning concerns how we relate to God in light of our spiritual poverty. Just like the ox, tremendous power, outstanding power, has that power harnessed, especially with how it relates to the Master. Jesus says, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Great gain is theirs who least demand it. So let's look at a couple of biblical examples. The best example of a meek person in the Bible, besides Jesus, of course, is King David. Though David had been anointed as king, he still served the present king, Saul. And at least one scholar estimated that he did so for 25 years. It's always bothered me. How much time was that? 25 years after he was anointed king, he became king of Judah. Furthermore, David was jealous of the fact that God, Saul was God's anointed, so much so, in fact, that the person who killed King Saul was executed by King David. David became the most powerful man he knew and apparently fought against himself having these riches and honors given to him before the timing was right. David is an example of one who received great gain though he did not demand that gain for himself. Now, Jesus is the best example of all that is good, and we look to him as our example of meekness. 
R.W. Glenn said Jesus embodied aggressive meekness, words that we don't normally think of. He drove out the sellers in the temple in Matthew 21. He railed against the religious elite who prevented others from entering the kingdom. And he even called one of his own sinning disciples Satan. Jesus was hardly someone that we can call milk toast. But of course, that's not enough. We also have the biblical testimony for describing him as meek. Paul says in Philippians 2, he commands us, do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but to the interests of others. That is Paul's definition of meekness. And then he continues, he says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. And not only did he die, but he willingly died a shameful, painful, heartbreaking death on the cross. As I say, verses 3 and 4 define meekness, and 5 through 8 portray Jesus as the greatest example of meekness. He didn't demand being worshipped in his earthly life as God, which was his right to do so. Now, without going into details about this passage, which obviously deserves its own sermon, I want to make three points, and these are in your notes in the forms of questions. The first point is self-esteem is a lie. What the world preaches to you about self-esteem is a lie. Self-esteem, as it is currently understood, is built on the idea that you can believe good things about yourself that have no basis in reality. And this... False belief is supposed to encourage you to do great things. Instead, empirically, scientifically, we know what this cult of self-esteem does. It turns people into self-absorbed narcissists who at best waste their lives with video games or at worst become mass murderers. Of course, I don't have an opinion on that. Instead, the way of Jesus is to esteem others as more valuable than yourself so that your real worth increases in God's eyes and others. The second thing is looking out for number one, quote unquote, number one, is a dead end. Jesus didn't think it worthwhile to demand worship while on earth. And though many do seem to succeed by today's standards who impress themselves upon others, The way of Jesus is to make God number one and to quote-unquote look out for Him. And the third point I want to take, again, this would take a whole sermon by itself. Sacrifice is the way to success. Our world is forced to recognize the greatness of those who live for others. Though we are forfeiting our cultural capital that makes such sacrifice possible, let alone desirable. But we've recognized that those who live for blank, you fill in the blank, whatever that is that you want, cause. These people who live for something are great. 
This week in the news, Mr. Naibu, I think that's how you pronounce his name, who is the executive director of Greenpeace, is counting on this reality so that he doesn't go to prison for the rest of his life. The way of Jesus, on the other hand, is to live in such a way that those nearest you see that you value the riches of heaven as opposed to whatever flighty, ephemeral security we might be able to grasp on earth. The way of Jesus is to value others because that is what heaven values. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. As we have seen in David and in Jesus, great gain is theirs who least demand it. It is in this idea of valuing the riches of heaven more than the security on earth that marks the meek person. Valuing the riches of heaven as opposed to grasping whatever security we can find on earth is the defining reality of the meek person. It is the same quality as is described as faith in Hebrews 11 through 13, 11, 13 through 16. I want you to catch I know everybody in this room has read this passage before, but I want you to catch where meekness fits in. These, the the cloud of witnesses described in the first 12 verses, all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on earth. They weren't demanding that people treat them well. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. And if they had been looking, if they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. Abram could have certainly gone back to Ur if he had wanted to. But as it is, they desire a better country than Ur could ever be. That is, they desired a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Now I want you to listen. This is this is crucial. Each of the beatitudes that we are going to go through, in their respective um, aspect of life in which they deal, is that aspect of life's expression of faith. Each of the beatitudes are simply expressions of this kind of faith related to the aspect of life being described. In terms of mourning, it's faith looking at God, saying, God, I am poor in spirit. I, I don't have any call on you. In terms of people around us, it's meekness. We're going to find uh, all the way through the beatitudes that they relate directly back to faith. And they are expressions of of faith in those aspects of their life. And this is why striving, agonizing, fighting for gain remains the essence of the Christian even where meekness is concerned. But it is gain that is not of this world or valued in this kingdom. The agonizing we do as Christians is for a kingdom that can't be seen on earth. The the striving that we do is not recognized by those around us who only see the self-assured, self-absorbed, completely quote-unquote normal person of this age as strength. And that's why we appear to be weak. 
And that's why you get the misnomer, the bad idea that meekness and weakness are the same. Now, in each of these sermons so far, I have emphasized this reality. This understanding of meekness or mourning or being poor in spirit or any of the other Beatitudes we're going to run into, this understanding is counter-cultural. It is counter-intuitive to anybody who has been raised, as all of us have, in the, this world, in this age in which we live. It is counterintuitive to everything that is valued by your neighbors. That is why the word metanoio, or repentance, Changing one's mind about what is really real, because that's what repentance means, changing your mind about what is really real, is absolutely essential to the Christian faith, to being a Christian. This 180 degree turnaround must not scandalize us. It must not cause us to say, oh, wait a minute, I don't want to be a part of that. Because this is what it means to flee the kingdom of the prince of the air. This is what it means to repent. For the power of God to change your life is as close to you as your smartphone. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Great gain is theirs who least demand it. And we have to we have to catch, we have to, we have to be able to comprehend, to understand this idea of meekness, or as we just read in Hebrews 11, this simple trust in God's promises, even though we can't put them in our hands, is very closely related to what we spend an inordinate amount of time doing. What do we spend a huge amount of time of our lives doing? Defending ourselves. Defending ourselves against our friends and family so that they think that we're nice and spiritual people. Defending ourselves against ourselves because we are messing up our own moral standards. Defending ourselves against people that we'll never see again because we drove by them or we walked by them in Albertsons. Meekness means never having to defend yourself. Because you already recognize I am poor in spirit and therefore I have nothing to defend. You, Christian, need never defend yourself because we already know from the outside from the outset that my sin is already indefensible. I have no excuse for my own sin. That is part of the glory of the good news of God's grace. Thank you. I love this quote. Never explain yourself. Your friends don't need it and your enemies won't believe it. I have no idea who Belgica Howell is and neither does Google, so she probably doesn't exist. But the quote's great, so I'm quoting it. And there is at least one more very good reason for us Christians to give up defending ourselves. Jesus is already doing it for us. Jesus is standing before the throne of grace pleading on your behalf, Christian. 
I loved Benji did that over and over again. Christian, that, that was great this morning. Jesus has taken this responsibility. He sits in heaven next to God the Father and deflects all the arrows of our accuser that are aiming to sink us eternally. He pushes them away. They can't get us. And yet, the quote from our book, Crucifying Morality, that we're quasi-following in this sermon series, R.W. Glenn says this. He says, In point of fact, meekness does not mean avoiding conflict or refusing to call a spade a spade just because the consequences seem undesirable. Instead, meekness simply means never asserting itself for its own sake, never pushing yourself, never demanding that someone look up to you. You can be meek while correcting or rebuking or admonishing, just not if you do those things as expression of one-upmanship or personal defensiveness. Jesus was no indecisive pushover. I like that word. Nor did he have a spirit of compromise. He was, but he was radically meek. He shows us that meekness is not conflict avoidance or being agreeable just for the sake of being agreeable. But instead, meekness means I have nothing to defend. And I have nothing to defend because I am poor in spirit and I have already recognized a long time ago that there is no defense for my sin. But I don't need to defend myself. Glenn goes on to say, meekness must therefore involve self-control, freedom from malice and a vengeful spirit and the absence of pretension. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Great, great, great gain is for you when you least demand that great gain. Now, I need to defend my statement that gain belongs to those who defend or demand it the least. What does Jesus mean when he says in, that the meek shall inherit the earth? What does inherit the earth mean? Well, apparently Jesus had read the Psalms. I know, he wrote the Psalms. But bear with me here. In Psalm 37:11, But the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. If the meek of Psalm 37.11 are as I have described them, it is clear that God is more than willing to give them such an inheritance as the land or the earth, Haaretz, because they're godly and they're content. Which leads me straight to 1 Timothy 6.6. Godliness with contentment is great gain. Certainly the person described by Paul is meek. God is willing to give the earth to such people because they are already content and will use their new in, newly inherited riches for God's glory instead of looking out for number one. And I think there's at least two reasons for this. One, the meek are content. They're satisfied. They have all they need and want. What more is there to strive after? Rockefeller was famously asked how much more money you need. Just a little bit more. Instead, you and I must seek first His kingdom because when we seek first His kingdom, we will be satisfied. When the object of our desires is God Himself, 
He will make sure that our desires are met. And the second reason, the meek are content or satisfied, but the meek are also filled with hope. Now, catch this, because this is, this is very important. The meek are the people who know in whom they have believed. 2 Timothy 1.12 And they are convinced that He is able to do that which He has promised. If that's true, if I am absolutely convinced that God is going to do everything for me that He has promised, if I can trust the promises of God for me in Christ, why worry? What is there to fret about? I have nothing to fret about. Because I know that my God is for me. He is not against me. I know that my God is with me. He will never leave me or abandon me. I know that my Redeemer lives and I shall see Him on the earth. Thank you. I needed an amen right then. I needed that. Indeed. What's the contrary to that? In this restless world, we learn one truth, if nothing else. Rest is only possible for those who know the discipline of being able to say no to our own desires. Oh Lord, that is not true in our culture today, is it? Only one with the requisite godly discipline to be meek can experience a rest that is unadulterated by the driven angst of our culture. Now, I'm, I'm doing this in each of these sermons. I ask what poor in spirit is or isn't. What is, what is meekness? Well, meekness is not. Meekness or spiritual poverty or godly grief is not a natural quality or the result of genetics. You don't have people born meek. You may have people born pushovers, but that's not the same thing. Meekness is not indolence or easygoingness or niceness. Indolence means uh, I'm lazy to the point of harming myself. And secondly, meekness is not weakness. Meekness is very compatible with strength and authority. The people most considered meek in the Bible were Moses, King David, and Jesus. Hardly the kind of people we would call pushovers. So then what is meekness? Martin Lloyd-Jones says, Meekness is my attitude towards myself and it, and it is an expression of that in my relationship with others. And secondly, he says, the man who is truly meek is the one who is amazed that God and man can think of him as well as they do and treat him as well as they do. Here's my attempt. Meekness is above all a studied, steady, intentional refutation of self. Meekness is above all a studied, steady, intentional refutation of self. Self-assertion, self-sensitivity, self-defensiveness, and self-pity. In other words, just plain old-fashioned self-absorption. Meekness is above all a teachable, obedient, and both trusting and trustworthy heart. That is what meekness is. Meekness is above all a teachable, obedient, and both trusting and trustworthy heart. Now let me add one more quote. 
Dallas Willard uses a different biblical phrase in this sentence, but you have all heard me say many times that the Bible uses these different phrases so that our blockheads can be broken down by them. But listen to this definition. He, he instead of saying meekness, he says being dead to self. But I believe that the ideas are the same. He says, being dead to self is the condition where the mere fact that I don't get what I want does not surprise me or offend me and has no control over me. Just because I don't get what I want, I can go on my merry way. Such a person is indeed blessed, and such a person indeed realizes great gain without demanding it. Blessed are the meek, they shall inherit the earth. Great gain beyond what you can now imagine is yours, O Christian, when you least demand it. So my last question, how can I live meekly, I don't know if that's really a word or not, but it is now, how can I live meekly to be more like Jesus and help grow his kingdom, propagate the kingdom that he is set up, setting up? So you want to inherit the earth. Right now, that earth, as we find it, is buried under the rubble of a culture that is dying a painful disintegration due to many reasons. Many reasons our culture is dying right now. But I think we can usefully reduce these reasons for, for this discussion to note how meekness among Christians will help this cultural disintegration that we are living in. self Absorption. From the father who refuses responsibility to the child who refuses to grow up. From the mother who refuses to give life to the family who refuses to nurture that life. From the businessman who refuses to put people ahead of profit to the cynic who refuses to believe that better is possible. Self-absorption is, if not the, is man a big reason why our culture is disintegrating right before our eyes. And if meekness means that you refuse to put yourself first, then only Christian, Holy Spirit led, grace filled meekness will meet that enemy. Only meekness can show our neighbors how they too can be part of the solution. Make them want to be part of the solution. Mother Teresa is the best example of meekness I know. A woman who, after years of sacrifice, attained what could have been inordinate personal wealth. If you look at her, she could have had inordinate amount of wealth to spend on herself. But what did she do? She sought to bless, don't miss what I'm about to say, Mother Teresa sought to bless the most wretched, undeserving, spit-in-your-face, non-Christian people that she could. And she did it for years. And she did it with a smile on her face. Now, I am not here to argue about her theology. She undoubtedly had many ducks out of line. But that would be me calling a kettle black. But Teresa's heart... Apparently, I'm not God, but apparently her heart was such that it was gold. 
It was pure gold because it refused to be put first. And we can learn from that at least three things. We ought to put others first by sacrificing our time with a good attitude when others need that time. We could put others first by sacrificing our talents with a good attitude when you are able to do something that your neighbor is just flat unable to do. We put others first by sacrificing our treasures with a good attitude when you give to make someone else more comfortable. As a side note, one idea in my reading that I I saw this week, the next time you go out to eat, put an extra dollar tip than you otherwise would have. Or give a tip at all. And then invite them to church. Take out one of the invitation cards and slip it in there. But make sure you're a good tipper when you do that because then they'll notice. Because blessed are the meek, you will receive much more than that extra dollar and tip when you inherit the earth, O Christian. Great gain is theirs who least demand it. Lord Almighty, I am certainly not equal to this, and it is only when we trust in your grace, your power working in us and through us, that we can even come close to seeing these truths in our lives. God, I pray that you will enable us to see you as glorified, as people see us truly understanding our own sinful hearts and responding to them appropriately as you have called us to do. Bless us, Jesus, so that we indeed will be blessed and so that we will be a blessing to those around us. In Jesus' name, amen.